Hello, hello, everyone. This is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District by Horizon Capital, where we partner with B2B SaaS companies and help them scale with both capital and our growth marketing playbook. This episode is also sponsored by our partners at Build, a startup development studio that helps early stage startups build and launch scalable revenue generating software businesses. Product development is often a challenge for non-technical founders who don't have a tech person internally. That's where Build comes in. They help founders build and launch their MVPs, test the market, and find product market fit. For 15K and roughly a month's work, Build will get your validated product up and out. We've all been burnt by the companies that promised this for years. But Build is focused on finding product market fit and will do that by keeping you away from the feature creep and escalating costs that do most initial products. They keep costs low with the block structure, but more importantly, they have already built great products on scope and on time for founders. Companies they've worked with have generated hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue, gotten into Y Combinator, or raised money at eight-figure valuations. If you have an idea and want to see it come to life as a product, head over to build.com. That's B-Y-L-D-D.com today. In today's episode, we'll be talking about product development to turn your next idea into your next app scale-up. Today, we have our guest, Andreas Kretten, joining us. Andreas is a software engineer and entrepreneur who loves developing apps and building teams. He's the CEO of Made With Love, which is an app development company that helps startups and established companies turn ideas into applications by offering uh, development, consulting, and ad interim management services, building both products and teams. They've been CTO in over 60 companies, mainly operating as CTO at interim. And you can regularly find Andreas if you're looking for him working on open source projects and speaking at conferences around the world. So welcome, Andreas. Super excited to have you on the show today. Cool. Thanks. Sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> Good intro. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, so let's just let's kind of you know start the conversation off. Uh, you know, talking about legacy code. I know with the, with Michael Feathers, he has a quote: "Legacy code is a code without test." Um, so you know, for people listening in, just trying to understand it, can you? Speak a bit more about that. What makes it so hard to work with when, when we're talking about legacy code? And do you agree with that that quote? Sure. Um, yeah, dealing with legacy code, I mean, of course, what's the definition of legacy? Um, we, we, um, legacy can also be a good thing. Um, so we typically talk about uh, technical depth. Um, so legacy code um, can be technical depth. And technical depth um, is indeed something that you shouldn't have because it's the depth, right? In the point in time to pay uh, your depth. And also when you have depth with someone, you have to pay interest on that. Um, and so basically that's that's why we uh, prefer to compare it with that um, um, more. And um, we say that there is something like control technical depth. And that's basically indeed um, when you have technical depth that you know it's there um, and you basically embrace it, then you, you think it's fine. You're happy to pay that interest. And there's tests around it indeed. Um, once you have tests around it, um, basically you, you know the ins and outs. You don't definitely you don't necessarily know how the code behaves, but you know if you if you put this input, you get this output, and that's the most important thing. So it's covered with tests, and then um, yeah, you're good. So um, in my opinion, it's still legacy code at that time, but it's controlled, and that's that's totally fine. Um, so I think legacy codes can also be code with tests, um, but of course, if there is um, tests around, legacy code makes it a lot easier. Uh, to maintain it and to, to cope with it. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay. And then I guess kind of switching gears, um, we'll kind of chat about, you know, about technical due diligence. Um, I want to understand sure. your guys' process because I see you guys work with several uh, VCs, you know, us at Horizon Capital, we also do our own technical due diligence when we do acquisitions. You know, I guess similar oh. process with VCs. 
um, who, are, who are looking to make investments on their product. Uh, can you just share, you know, people listening, what does your, what does a typical DD process look like? And what are some maybe top red flags that you guys come across when you're running DD um, for, for a lot of, you know, products out there or investments and usually kill the deal maybe? Of course. Um, maybe a little bit of background story on how we started doing them. So mm-hmm. we, um, company exists for 14 years this year. And um, we've been working as CTOs um, and, and, and software engineers in a lot of different companies, uh, mainly in the startup and the scale scene indeed. And um, investors started noticing us. And uh, at one point in time in 2017, uh, one of the bigger investors in Belgium, they offered like, hey, uh, it looks like you guys know what, know what you're doing on the technical side of things. Can you please do the diligence for us? And so that's how we got started with, uh, doing it. And we had no clue how to do it. So we just, mm-hmm. we just winged it, more or less. Um, and uh, they were very happy with our approach. Um, and um, I guess what we do is we, we're, of course, technical. It's a technical due diligence, but we take it a little broader than, than most other companies. So uh, we look into five different pillars, uh, one being the team and the leadership. Um, uh, another one being the processes, um, then the communication, mainly the written communication, like documentation, stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. Then obviously the engineering team or engineering. Um, and the last thing we look at is a problem solution. So it's kind of a product um, team. So we look at a way broader perspective than just like looking into the code base or um, asking a couple of questions to engineers. Uh, we are interview based, so that's also very important. So we don't send the checklist of problems, which is something that a lot of auditors do. We really start with interviewing. We try to understand like how the company operates. And the question that we're trying to solve is basically, is this company ready for growth? Um, on, a, on a technical perspective, but also on a team perspective and a processes perspective. Um, so typically we do like eight interviews in the diligence. Um, we spend about two days in the code base, um, you know, diving in and, and, and seeing how things are architectured. Um, but we're not like a company that, that will say like this line of code is it's, it's not good or, or whatsoever. We really try to get a, a broader sense of it. Uh, and also makes that we can basically have a very quick turnaround. If, uh, we can do them typically in one week um, from, from start to finish. Um, and that's what investors also really like. And from the perspective of the, of the target companies that we that we audit, um, they also find a very pleasant experience um, because they don't have to go to useless checklists and things that they have to deliver. It's really from engineer to engineer. And, and maybe also one very important thing to know is that the people that do the audits on our side are the people that still work day-to-day with customers. So we're not a pure auditing company. We still are CTOs in the field. Um, and we basically rotate our teams um, um, that do the audits and, and also work on, on actual products. So we also know what's going on in the market. Well, we see that all of our auditors, they're like, yeah, it's like one man show doing audits um, or the diligence, and then yeah, you lose a bit of disconnection with with, with what's going on in the world. Um, yeah, and the, the common red flags that we encounter um, it depends on the stage of the company. Uh, in a very early stage, it's it's a lack of documentation, um, lack of processes, um, which most of the time are something that you can correct, but in in some cases it will basically slow down growth a lot. And if the founders don't realize that's a problem, um, they um, they will not be able to grow the team uh, as, as fast as they plan to do in the, in the, in the business plan that they uh, present to the investor. Um, in the bigger scale-ups, um, definitely technical depth is something that we encounter, obviously, um, mm-hmm. and it's uncontrolled technical depth. So basically what happens most of the time is they start with a small team, hacker-type CTO that just builds a thing that has all the knowledge, then they start adding people to the team. What we often see, for example, is that the CTO leaves and then that the team is left with the code base that they didn't write themselves. They start 
I mean, they built on top of that. And at one point in time, they kind of lose the oversight of the whole uh, situation. And that's typically uh, where we come in to, to kind of clean things up, uh, make a clean sheet, and then make prepare the ground for a new CTO to join uh, the team to, to, yeah, to basically continue the, the work that we started. And, yeah. Okay, so maybe let's go further on to that last point. So if I'm a if I'm a VC, I invested in a company, you know, further down the stage, and you find all this, you know, technical debt, um, you know, but they still decide to move forward and say, okay, we're going to invest in you, and then you come in uh, working with them to help kind of mitigate that risk or work on that technical debt. Um, how, how do you guys work with them? I mean, if they probably have a CTO already in place, they already have a team. You're working with them, um, and what does that kind of uh, engagement look like? And, and you know, how long does it last? And then the, you know, eventually that they, they're on their own, they're able to manage it uh, properly. So, um, so how, I'll, let me start with with like how long it typically takes us. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's not realistic to make change in in less than six months. Um, sometimes we manage to do it in six months, um, but typically we end up being there like a year, maybe eighteen months. Um, and from day one, we discuss what we call the exit plan. Um, so we want to know what our exit plan is, um, because we don't want to work with a company for longer than two years. Because we work with a lot of VCs, they don't, they want to don't want to give a lot of money to external consultants. The startups need to be able to run on their own. So we really come in like like the AT cleaning teams up, and then then we're out again. So that's our approach. And um, how we do it, like working with the teams, uh, I think trust is the most important uh, thing about what we do. So we always combine what we call technical consulting. So this is like the CTO at interim, or if, if there was already a CTO, we, we typically give the person another title. Sometimes it's a VP engineering, sometimes uh, it's engineering manager. We don't really care about it. But basically we come in to assist the CTO in that situation um, and, and to push them forward uh, further and to coach the coach. But we also do the same on the engineering level. So we bring in our own software engineers. So that's why we have a team consisting of CTOs and software engineers. We, we believe in the combination of both because we want to have the boots on the ground and we really want to show how it's done also to the engineering team. So we're not like a consultant and I always compare with a seagull. I don't know if you know that comparison, but it'd be a seagull, they fly in, mm-hmm. they sit on the pole, they make a lot of noise, they ship the pole full of shit, obviously. And then they fly away, and the only thing that's left is a is a, is a pile of shit. And that's how yeah. I compare typical consultants that come in and, and they just say a lot of things, and then it's up to the team to implement it, and they have no clue how to get started on. So that's why we believe in that combination. And the first thing that we will do is to basically talk with people. If we haven't done the diligence before, we will talk with the people. We'll we'll try to understand their ambitions, their their struggles, um, and we will work from that. So we're never no project is the same. So we will always adapt our, 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 our approach to the team that we have uh, available, to the challenges that they're facing, and we try to find the best way to get her together. Uh, and that's that's really the most important thing. And all our engineers that we have in our team are very communicative and good mentors. And we really take the hands of the engineering team of our customers and we, we push them uh, to the next level. Mm. Nice, nice. Um, and then, you know, when you're working with them, um, what, what, how do you kind of balance? Right? I think balance is the big act, right? So you, you can spend a lot of time, you know, as the CTO thinking, okay, should I work on my technical debt and kind of manage that? Or do I work on product development as a, you know, as a product manager or CTO? Uh, what's your take on that? And how do you, how do you effectively think about balancing yeah. that act? I mean, if you ask a developer, they will always want to refactor things and, and spend time in code, right? For sure. um, we are, we are really pragmatic in that. Obviously, um, there needs to be a good balance um, and it depends a bit on the situation. 
First of all, the, the first thing that we say is we don't refactor just for the sake of refactoring. If you want to refactor something, you do it because you're touching that part of the code base and you're making it better. It's like the Boy Scout principle. I don't know if you've heard about it, but basically mm -hmm. in the Boy Scouts, when you go camping, you go to the campsite, you leave the place in a cleaner state than, than you found. And we, that's what we're doing code as well. But it makes absolutely no sense to do like a big rewrite because that's what we see a lot. Um, a lot of companies do that. Um, it's like, yeah, the old technology is not very good anymore. Let's start over from scratch. And then they end up with a three to five year project that, that's never finished. Um, and so we really belong, uh, believe in that evolutionary approach rather than the revolution. Um, and that's what we what we try to install. In some cases, we actually put a percentage on the amount of product work versus legacy work. And it's something that I really use to our CEOs, for example, to, to explain to them um, like um, that there is a need for cleaning up the legacy, but that we also still want to push forward on, on, um, on product development. And in some cases, like in one company that I worked with, we had like for uh, six months, we had like a real product stats. We, we didn't develop any new features. Of course, from a product management perspective, um, that's the worst thing to, have, to ever happen to your company, right? So we, we try to find something, some, some nifty things that we could do so that for the customers, it still felt like things are moving forward, but the engineering team had the time to basically clean things up. And what we did there um, is we did, for example, we went through a redesign, because um, it's just front-end work, it's other people working on it most of the time than the real legacy, legacy stuff. So um, we went through a redesign, we improved the usability of the application. Um, we did some kind of low-hanging fruit stuff. And by doing these kind of things, the application was still moving on with a very low effort from the engineering team. And we had the time to then clean things up. And at the moment, at the moment, we had like a stable foundation after that six months, probably developed really, really sped up. And we, I mean, it was five years ago, and they still have like the pace of being able to really quickly develop new functionality because they took the time to slow down for a while. And um, that's something that's very hard to explain to a CEO and, 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 and she probably helps her sometimes, but yeah, it's paying off that debt. If you really compare it with that, um, they, they'll understand. Um, and so I, I, I always try to make like ratios um, and it's a ratio between product work, bugs, and, um, and, and, uh, and legacy. Because also bugs are something that's, that's sometimes underrated um, some engineering teams sure. spend a lot of time solving bugs, but if you put a percentage on it, like you know, like every week you spend like 10% of our time on solving bugs, we could spend maybe 100%, but I mean, then you don't have any feature work. So um, putting like really down in numbers and measuring it really helps. And, and you know, you mentioned something about the refactoring part of it. Um, and you mentioned a lot of times maybe a CEO or a, co a company comes and say, like, let's just do that instead. Let's spend a lot of time and money to just refactoring it rather than you know fix the code. Um I'm assuming most of the time, you know, that's probably not the best solution of what you, you know, that's probably not something, you know, they come to you and say, this is what we we want, but you say, it's probably not what you need. I'm, I'm sure that's kind of how the conversation goes. What are some reasons when you say, okay, yes, this is what you need and you agree with it and uh, we actually do need to refactor yeah. this? Is there like what I mean, scenarios? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, most of the time, it's like they're using very old data technology. Um and then I'm like what, talking. Like what? What, what, what? what kind of technology are we talking I mean, I'm going to talk with a customer they're on COBOL. Uh, it's like a very old programming language. Um, and, and they track with a mainframe system. Um, yeah, that's old stuff, right? Um, and there, I guess it might make sense to, to, to switch to something else. Um, but still, the COBOL, it outputs HTML and they're making web applications with COBOL. 
Um, so also there, I don't think they need to go for an approach where they replace everything at once. I think they can, and if we did that in other companies as well, if you put a proxy in front of it, you can start um, basically rebuilding parts of the application and you run some parts of the application to the old system, some parts to the new system, but for the end user, there is no difference in experience. Um, so that's, that's so typically it's when there is like very, um, yeah, a programming language that's not really used anymore um, or that doesn't have a good community anymore um, or when there has been like a very, very drastic change, for example, in database structure or basically in, the, in what the company is doing. Um, we see, a, I mean, of course, in an early stage company, you go through a lot of different phases of your product. And sometimes the product that you started building in the, in the first day is something like years different than what you're doing after three years. And sometimes the, basically the structure is not compatible anymore, and then it might be a good time to say, okay, let's let's start um, from scratch. Um, or of course, if you're going to do something totally different um, and you decide to do that, it's also better to start from scratch rather than to to build on top of something that you already have. Uh, if it, if there is not a lot of connection uh, between the two products, got it. That makes perfect sense. Um, and when it comes to tools, is there any? You know, there's obviously so many tools in the space of what you know how it can help you. Uh, manage the different aspects of technical debt. Is there any maybe favorite tools or specific ones that Made with Love uh, you guys use to ensure kind of code quality and, and yeah, and we I mean, maybe it's more about kind of the kind of tools that we use. Um, sure, I think um, so. First of all, the the first thing that we will do when we when we get into a company is, is if they don't have it, is installing a good continuous integration and, and continuous deployment pipeline. That's the first thing that that we do to ensure that everything can run smoothly because. In a lot of the companies that we encounter, they don't even have that, or they have parts of it. Um, the second thing is having a good local development environment that's really close to the production environments. For me, it does not need to be 100% the same. I don't think you need to be running Kubernetes clusters on your local machine. I think you can do fine with it with a simple Docker setup that's more or less the same. Um, but yeah, it uses the same versions and stuff like that. Um, and then, um, the, the next thing that we'll do is, of course, installing tests. Um, there we use, for example, uh, if, if the code base is too messy to have uh, unit tests or, or functional tests in the code base, we will use something like Cypress to do like end to end tests in the front end um, to, to, to test some of the critical parts. Um, and then we will use like a, a code linter. Um, typically, we configure it in such a way that the linting already works on the file that we touch because we see a lot of people that say, yeah, we cannot use a linter on our code base because it's all spaghetti code. But you can configure most of the linters in such a way that they only lint the code that you changed. So every every pull request, it only lints the code that you changed. And then step by step, you get into better shape. And the same that we do with, um, with a static code analyzer. Um, also there, we will have that. And we'll only run it on the, on the, you know, the clean the parts of the code base. And yeah, the more we clean up, obviously the more will be covered by, by um, uh, via static analysis and via via linter, um, and basically, I think those things and having then a good like um, pull request um, setup going on or whatever merge request that you're using, um, where basically all those checks need to pass. There's also a manual approval um, necessary by someone else in the team. Um, all those things combined make basically that as a developer you have um, the good. Um, yeah, I mean, you can trust the process um, so that if, if you're rewriting stuff and all the tests are green, that, that it should work. Um, that's basically where we uh, start with. Okay. Yep. 
Okay, Make, makes sense. Um, and if uh, you know, switching, I'll talk about you know the more important part of the around the team. You know, less about the, the code itself. Um, as a CTO, if I'm if you guys are coming in as as at interim CTO and looking to refine or optimize the team, what are some maybe steps or what are some things you guys consider and and how you map out and build the you know let's say perfect or ideal engineering team? And do you guys also help in uh, you know replacing yourself in terms of the CTO and yeah, finding that yeah, right we so we have two recruiters in our team. Um, cool. So we, we really, I mean, I always say we, we take all the pain away from the CTO. So we also help with recruiting. I think that's a very important part of our job, actually. Um, mm-hmm. Replacing ourselves, that we want to replace ourselves with people that are to the same level as we are. Mm-hmm. We see a lot of startups, um, especially in Europe, that have like very junior engineers. And I don't really like to talk in junior, senior, whatever. I'll, let's say inexperienced engineers. Um, that are rated freshman school or or went through a bootcamp and then start joined the company. And and they believe that basically with a lot of boots on the ground, you can get a lot of work done. Um, but sometimes it's better to have like a couple of senior people in your team. And they'll get like one senior developer gets the work done of like two junior developers. And from a financial perspective, it might uh, be more or less equal. Um, but to manage things, it's a lot easier uh, because you have way less people to manage, and of course they're more senior, so they take more responsibility. So um, in a lot of the, the cases that, that we end up with, we try to bring up the seniority or the experience in the engineering team, and we do that in two different ways. It's by adding new people, but also by mentoring the people that are already there to bring them to the next step. So we try to both approaches. And we do the same for CTO, by the way. It's not necessarily that we bring a CTO externally. If there is already a CTO that needs to be coached, we will coach a person um, and we will try to bring them to the, to the right level. If, for example, a CTO left and we, we need to base them temporarily, um, and if there is some, and we believe there is someone in the team that would be ready for the job, we will start coaching that person and we'll bring them along into certain meetings and, and into the process that we are installing so that at one point in time they're ready to take over if they're ready for it. Um, so, that's the best way to do it to, to for example, for CTO to have it come from internal. Unless there is like a drastic cultural change that needs to happen, and then it might make more sense to bring someone externally and also bring in some like more, um, yeah, and external engineers to 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 get things going. Got it. Yeah. So you know, I guess I guess it sounds like the focus should be more on on you know getting people more on the senior side, um, or at least you know leveling up the especially the in early stage, yeah. especially in early stage. It's, I see a lot of early stage companies. Because of monetary reasons, mm-hmm. use junior or, or less experienced people, um, and um, yeah, you don't get as far as quickly as you want with with, with that level of engineering. Then, mm-hmm. if you're bringing more senior people, yeah. got it. So that's not somewhere you want to cheap out on, right? If you can pay for no. for the senior and more exactly. experience, it's going to make your life uh-huh. everybody life yeah. easier. Yeah, I always agree with that. Um, okay, last question around you know about your, your guys' process and how you work. If I'm a SaaS founder. Let's say whether I'm, I'm early stage, I want to develop my my application, uh, and we come to you made with love. Look, we don't have the the you know the team in place, but walk us through uh, how does your services work with me? Where do I start, and what stage would my product be finished if I come to you and say I've got this roadmap or this product I want to be I want built? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so most of the founders that come to us are non technical founders that yeah. already went through an exit before, so they know what it is to build a team, a technical team, and they know how hard it is. So basically, they trust us uh, to basically take that risk away of building their own team. Because as a non-technical founder, you cannot judge like what your technical team is doing. We see a lot of companies, I mean, and they end up on our plate in the end, um, 
where basically non-technical founders trusted some kind of developer, CTO, or whatever agency. Um, and they they trust them for like maybe six, nine months of working on something, and then they figure out like this is totally unstable. We paid for other crap, right? That's sadly enough a situation that, that that we clean up a lot. But let's say you're indeed like a founder, you have an idea, you come to us. And actually, the green the we call it greenfield work, it's like getting something new started. It's only like 20% of the work that we do, so it's we okay. don't do them too much. Um, but basically, first of all, we will talk about product management. Um so we don't do product management ourselves. So if the people have a good idea on how to build the products um, and they, they, they really know how to write the specifications and 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 um, and yeah, know how to, to work with a good designer or they have already a good designer, then basically we can talk and we can start working. If they don't have that, um, we have a sister company, uh, it's called Smooth Sailing and they can take care of all of that. So first they go to, through the product management, I mean, user research, um, first wireframe, stuff like that. And then um, once that's done, we want to be involved in the process because we believe also from a technical perspective, we can shape a product and we can make the product better if you um, if you consider technology already in the early stage. Um, the next thing that we will do, obviously, is start building stuff. Um, and there we want to be as pragmatic as possible as well. So for example, we are never going to build an invoicing system. Um, we're using Stripe for that or, or any other products um, that, that fits. And also we're not going to implement it on day one because that's what a lot of companies do. You only need it when you have customers, right? And not when you have like two customers, because two customers, you can easily build a menu. You need it when you have like maybe 20 customers, because I start uh, starts to become a pain. Um, so we build a version of your products um, iteratively. So that be a scrum or whatever we decide together um, how you want to work. We built also documentation. I think that's also very important. Um, so there was documentation for internal people to take it over for us. And then typically when we are pretty far in the development process and things are ready to, to launch, we will urge the customer to hire people on their own payment. So basically we will tell them, hire your own engineers. We can help you with finding them if it's necessary. But basically bring your own engineers um, in your team and we want to hand over your products at the moment more or less when it goes live. So that kind of the operational side of things is handled by the internal team. Because obviously if you want... Um, your company be to success to be successful. They don't want to have like all the intellectual uh, uh, property. I mean, property not but the knowledge uh, on the side of an external contractor. You want to have it within your company, and that's also typically when they raise another round of funding. And when you want to raise another round of funding, it's best to have as much knowledge internally as possible. So, yeah. and that also there like the time frame of a process like that is is between nine uh, months and eighteen months more or less. So. Well, I always say you cannot get the product uh, done in under nine months, uh, like really finished and, and polished. So, so you're talking iteratively. Maybe you know they come up with an MVP or kind of the initial product, uh, or just you know single feature uh, out, you know, to, yeah. to roll out. So that's nine months you're talking, or you know we got, no, we got a couple obviously of, yeah. maybe yeah. the core the core of the product typically maybe mm -hmm. it's, you have it in three months, but you need to have all the surrounding mm -hmm. and. So to really get a, a finished product, not like the MVP, but a finished product, product design mm -hmm. months. And how we do that is basically we assign to you a CTO and an engineering team, typically two or three people, very small teams, that's what we believe in as well. And mm -hmm. they basically are responsible for the whole search of trade. Um, of the, uh, of the um, and when you start onboarding your own developers, basically we, we phase out our developers accordingly. And, and you guys also help with, you said, product managers as well? 
Okay. And just quick question around uh, location. You guys are based in is in, in, in Europe, Eastern Europe, or no, I'm based is? in Belgium, but our company is remote. Um mm. so we have people uh, throughout Europe. Um mm. we used to have some people in the in the in um, Latin America as well, uh, okay. in Africa. Uh, but we try to keep our time zones basically from New York time to kind of Moscow time zone, but that's where we are. Okay, awesome. Yeah, just for people listening in to understand you know, where you go, where to find you. Um, sure. Cool, cool. Andreas, want to move shift gears here, kind of move to the second part of the sure. interview, a little bit more more fun, less technical, but we'll uh, and know a little bit more. About your, your, I know, I know. That's the fun part for you, but uh, now we got to get into the emotional side and, and understand your story. Okay. So, um, but before we get there, tell us where are you guys in terms of size today, and I'm assuming you guys have you know have you guys raised any capital or completely bootstrapped? How long have you guys been around? Um, so that we I bootstrapped the company, so it exists for 14 years now. And um, I, uh, in 2017, I sold a part to some kind of story and investment transfer to private equity. Uh, but I uh, actually last year I bought the, we bought in deck with the management team. So now we're totally independent again. Um, nice. And so we we're 20 people, um, and we want to keep it small. So it's yeah. uh, it's a real real struggle for mm-hmm. us to to keep the size down. So um, we want to be between 20 and 30 people, not more than that. Um, because I want to be able to deal with customers still every day. I mean, I do, for example, all the diligence myself. I also write code for customers myself still every day because I really believe that as a founder uh, of a company like this, you need to be able to, to still go with, uh, with, with the guys in the field uh, and get things done. So we really want to keep it small. Um, we make good revenue, we make good profit. Um, and yeah, we hire people that we think that will be a value to our team. Um, we always have positions open, but we're not hiring because we just need to hire someone. So customers have to wait. Uh, we want to hire the right people. And that's really our main focus, like finding those people, bringing them in our team, and then we can scale up uh, accordingly. Yeah, that's the, that's the best way to do it. Um, yes. what's, what's one activity uh, that you enjoy outside of work that gets you into flow state? Um, I do like uh, carpenting. Okay. Uh, what, what, so I, uh, I, um, but I like the, the the rough side of things. So I like building cabins and stuff like. Okay. So, um, during the pandemic, I built a cabin in my backyard uh, because I was fed up with working between the kids and you know the kids disturbing uh-huh. you all the time. Yeah. So um, yeah. So that's I love doing that. Nice. Did you build your office where you're working right now with your, with yeah, your hands? Yeah. I mean, this this is this is actually funny. The, the office where I'm standing here today, I'm you know, the beer stand out as well. You know, the beer. Like it's like one? a Stella Arts one. Oh yeah, of like course, a, yeah, sure. So the, this building where I'm standing at is where it's the first time that they brewed it. It's was in this building, so it's a, oh, a wow. brewery. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> and uh, so it's just a little angle. So no, this is like a very old building. I mean, it's, it's of course redone from the inside. Um, but no, I'm I'm I'm, one, I'm working from the cabin two days a week. Um, okay. Yeah, and it's, uh, it works pretty well. That's awesome. Um, cool. What's what's one piece of advice you wish you had known and if you can go back you would tell your 25 year old self it's funny because i'm, I'm writing a, a chapter in a book that's about it's called letters to young entrepreneurs so the next i what it's about and i'm thinking about what i would write and it's it's a couple of, of different things but um maybe coming back to the, the whole bootstrap and, and growth kind of thing um mm-hmm. when you are an entrepreneur and you tell people you're an entrepreneur the first thing they'll ask you is like how many people are you because that's an indication of the size of your company, right? Sure. Um, and um, 
I think it should be more accepted to try to keep a company small and to um, and to basically enjoy yourself all the time rather than to have to chase external investment to be able to grow your company to whatever size, which is also a path that you can take. But I really believe there is also a place for the path where basically you can be yourself every day, day in, day out, have a really nice life, um, and then yeah, enjoy yourself building a company rather than to chasing um, yourself all the time. And that's really the, the kind of approach that, that I've taken, um, and that really works for so that's also a part that you can can take, and I, I guess that's something that I would want to to tell, um, yeah, my twenty five year old self or anyone else starting in a company. Yeah, today. completely agree with that. I mean, build for what suits for you, what you want, not for exactly. you know, chasing external yeah. social social cues or, or social, mm-hmm. you know, pressures or norms. Yeah. Um, what What are some of the biggest challenges you guys are facing in order to continue to grow? Made with love, you know, meaning what keeps you up at night? And other than, you know, trying to keep the team lean and, you know, grow kind of sustainably, what, what, are, what are the things, your challenges you're facing? I'm not, I mean, I'm not kept up at night. <laughs> okay, not keeps easy. you up at night. <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's, it's really, and it's really to, my, to the frustration of my wife, but um, <laughs> you sleep like a baby. I sleep very well. Um, yeah. What's the, um, I mean, we have to make choices, a lot of choices. Um, for example, the audits that we're doing and the technical due diligence, we, uh, we decide to limit ourselves to one case per week. And there, for example, I mean, there's, there is a demand to do way more. So we can double it, triple it, maybe. Um, but they basically took the decision to, to keep it small and to say no to investors, um, which is a risk as well, because they might run to another company um, um, in, in those cases. So these kind of decisions were to keep it small, you, you're making a lot of compromises and you need to be making the right ones for, for the future of the company. Yeah. yeah, I think that's um, there's the most difficult thing that, that we are facing. Yeah, it sounds easy, right? But I mean, every every micro decision, right, those add up and ends up exactly. doing something down the line, just like code, right? Yeah. Um, mm. What What are the best three resources? These can be books, people, mentors, or people you follow in the space who you'd say have been the most instrumental to your success over these last few years, and would suggest other people uh, listening in to check out. So. The last part of this thing is Chicago will be hard, but my team is, is mm-hmm. definitely the best resource. Um, mm-hmm. We are a remote team, um, and we are not built about uh, around like a play hard, work hard culture, because if you're remote and you see each other only once a year, it's not possible. Uh, but we're based around knowledge. Um, we share a lot of information, um, and we really like, yeah, that's really what we live on, information and, and challenging, challenging each other. And um so they are for sure my biggest resource and, and knowledge. And I'm actually writing a book uh, together with one of our uh, CTOs in residence about like how you manage a team like that and, and how you um, yeah manage that knowledge as well. Um, then, I mean, Jason Fried uh, from, from Basecamp, I think they, they, they renamed it again to, to 37 Signals right now. Uh, I mean, they have the, the, the first book that I really fell in love with uh, was the... Um, Start was, of course, get, was Getting Real. No? Oh, gonna be, oh yeah, there. Yeah. yeah, it's like a very stupid, very old book, and 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 when you <laughs> read it again now, it's like, it's like um, totally outdated. Yeah, I think it's from two thousand, maybe four or maybe six. I don't know. Very old. Um, mm-hmm. And but it's totally outdated, and and um, but still for me it was it it, it um, was a very big inspiration to me. Um, that that very tiny book. Uh, I think all the old books are less interesting than than that first one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last one, and this one we give to a lot of customers, 
is the Phoenix Project. Um, I don't know if you have you read the Phoenix Project. I have not. Who's that by the Phoenix Project? Uh, I don't know the author of it. I, I think it's a group of authors, but basically, it's a it's a it's a, a fictional book um, about um, um, yeah, basically a software team where things go wrong, and if you give it to a software team. And they start reading, I mean, someone in the book starts reading the book. Everyone can recognize themselves in one of the personas in the book. And it's really nice. There is like this guy called Brent. He's like a bottleneck for everything. It's like the, he stops the boys and stuff like that. Um, and, and so it's, it's, uh, there is also this kind of the guy that writes the Porsche, I think he's writing, that comes okay. into the factory, uh, into the company every maybe once a month and, and says like three things. And everyone's like, wow, what he's saying is awesome. And then he leaves again and they're like, what do we have to do now, right? So these kind exactly. of people are in there, and, and it's very nice to relate to that. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a nice book to read. Yeah. Okay. So we give it to all our customers. Okay, yeah. so if you, if you were giving it to our customers, then I definitely have to recommend that and read it myself. Cool. Sure. We'll add that to the show notes for people to check out as well if you guys want to want to read it. Um, Andreas, what does success mean to you today? I mean, either personally, business, financial, life. There's, there's no right answer. For me, it's... Um, I mean, I'm happy with with the life I have today, and and I think it's important that I can spend a little time with my family. Um, I have three kids. Uh, one is uh, almost two, and the others are four and, and six, so they're very small. And and um, I think it's very important to, to be able to to spend a lot of time with them. Uh, I'm taking the time for them today. I went to to take them um, from school, um, and then I was home with them and I cooked dinner for them. Um, and then I came back to the office to record this podcast. Um, so, and I think that's that's really also the flexibility that that we have today. I guess, yeah. Uh, yeah. Either, I mean, by being a founder of a company, but also our team has the flexibility because we are remote, um, we're organized like that, and basically can work from everywhere, from whenever you want. And I think that's, um, of course, financial uh, independence is is also an important thing. But having that freedom to to basically work whenever you want and whenever you like, I guess. That's for me the, the most important thing. Love it. Yep, I, I completely agree. Um, Andreas, this has been great. I enjoyed I enjoyed chatting with you, learning more about you, your background, Made With Love. If you guys want to check it out, madewithlove.com. Um, founders listening in want to get in touch with you. Where's the best place to contact you directly? Um, I mean, they can they can reach out to me on LinkedIn or, or fill out the contacts from the website. Um, okay. We also have a good blog um, that talks about most of the things that we discussed during the, the talk here. Um, so it's about legacy, it's about dealing with teams, uh, stuff like that. So you can find a lot of resources there as well on, on what we do. Okay, awesome. And I see on your guys' website, you guys are hiring quite a bit for you know different engineering yes. teams, and so people Absolutely. can check that as well. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andres. Appreciate you joining today. Thank you. All right. Have a good one. Thank you all for watching this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at Horizon Capital and myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please comment down below and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and see you on the next one.